Hello everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Geopolitical Pickle. Today we're going to be having a really interesting interview. We're here with Antonia Colibasanum. She is the Chief Operating Officer of Geopolitical Futures, and she's also a lecturer in international relations for the Romanian National University of Political Studies and Public Administration. Last year, she also wrote a book on geoeconomics, the 2022 The Geoeconomic Roundabout, How We Entered the First Global Economic War. And previously, she had also she had also published another book called Contemporary Geopolitics and Geoeconomics. She's an expert, among other matters, as you can imagine, on geoeconomics. And uh, today with her, we'll talk about this framework that allows us to explore economics, international politics, and geopolitics through a different framework. So thank you very much, Antonia, for being here with us. Thank you for having me. This is going to be an interesting talk, I hope. So we hope to. I mean, we're thank sure you. it will be. She's also my boss, so you better make it a good interview. That's the most important thing. Well, it's on you. It's your boss. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I would like to start us off then, Antonia, with uh, just going through the basics of geoeconomics. So can you just explain how geoeconomics differs from regular economics, how it fits into the wider framework of geopolitics? Sure. So and there are actually two questions there. Uh, first of all, um, economics, what, what we study as economics, macroeconomics and, or microeconomics, um, is fundamentally about the way that society works and the way that governments are using uh, economic policy to keep countries stable. Uh, we do not look into how geography shapes uh, economics. And we certainly do not necessarily think about resources when we uh, discuss regular economics. Even if uh, we we do discuss cost issues, uh, we do discuss revenue uh, issues, and we are always about um, you know always concerned about how um, stability works in terms of inflation, in terms of unemployment. So all these factors are being discussed. They are taken as you know major factors to to play with when um, policy is being shaped, but there is no um, thought about how geography is shaping all this, how resources are shaping all this, and ultimately how relations between states are shaping the economic policy of one particular country. So. That said, uh, we're going into the, the answer to the second question. How is geoeconomics related to geopolitics? Well, um, for the wider picture of geopolitics, we have a framework that deals with looking into three pillars, we say. Politics, economics, and military, right? Well, I basically took the economics part and said, okay, because we are growing into uh, a world where we are way more interconnected than we ever been before at a mental level. So it's not that we didn't have this kind of interconnectedness and uh, this kind of, uh, you know, globalization, if you will, before in history, but we are appreciating it differently now because um, at the mental level, we do know that we are closer. We can communicate with our peers uh, way faster than our ancestors could. So because of this, I said, okay, let's focus on economics and focus on economics while thinking about the wider framework of geopolitics. This is how geoeconomics basically um, kind of turned into my head. And then I started looking to see and reading about geoeconomics and how others are uh, looking at this term or at the framework itself. And there are basically two major schools right now. Uh, one is the American school, which um, basically says we need to have... Um, power of economic thinking. So this is the, the way that the American school looks at the term geoeconomics. It's more like, okay, this is a tactic that goes into the wider strategy of 
supporting the geopolitical imperative, if you will, the country's strategy. It's a piece of a larger puzzle. Um, and there is also the um, European school that basically says, okay, this is um, not necessarily a piece of the puzzle. It may be the most important piece of geopolitics because... Uh, we are entering a, a world where this interconnectedness is more um, obvious and because we are playing the hard game in a soft way by looking at the economic policies and by looking at dependencies between states. Um, and the European school that looks into geoeconomics is more like um, taking the economic intelligence terms and business intelligence terms and framework and transforming it for strategy. Uh, we're not yet at the level where uh, we have a common understanding on the framework, um, which is why my research is oh, right. It's, it's getting more exciting because it's kind of a new thing. Uh, but at the same time, I believe that um, if I were to say, is, is geoeconomics really different from geopolitics or what is the relationship there? I would say that geoeconomics is part of geopolitics still, because it, it, to understand the power play and the power game at the level of um, the globe, at, at the worldwide level, you need to understand how economics have cha has changed it mm. and how um, you know society has changed with new economic games coming in. In that sense, you've, you've mentioned that there's two schools or, or for now two ways of approaching the American uh, way and the European. Uh, it comes to mind, for example, a really massive economic project as it can be the Belt and Road Initiative um, have other parts of the world already been exploring it from the academic perspective or uh, it's all coming? The, the study of geoeconomics is, uh, is really, really recent. Well, it's the Asian schools, so the Japanese and the Chinese approach on uh, geoeconomics is, is a bit more practical in the sense of uh, you, you see glimpses of what they are thinking about when when you think about geoeconomics, but there aren't studies. It's like policy planning, it's strategy that is being shaped. Um, it is uh, basically practical lines uh, that states have embarked on, like the Belt and Road Initiative, um, or like the new economic strategy that Japan is putting together for the last five, almost 10 years now. Um, but it's not uh, that you can see um, research being done with regards to this geoeconomic framework. While when I when I mention the geoeconomic schools, there are books that are actually um, written on the topic. Um, there is War by Other Means, which is probably the the best known book in the American school on geoeconomics. Um, and in Europe, there are French papers um, and even German papers. The Germans have more the approach of the Asians in that regard. Uh, they are putting together strategy. They are not necessarily looking at the term and doing research on it and looking at the framework. So they're not scholars. They're practitioners. So that's that's why I say that, you know, for, for the research uh, part for the scholars part, we have two schools. For the practitioners, we have the Asian um, style of putting together strategy to play with economics and play with economic policy, um, as well as we have it within Europe itself. We have the German um, pretty much doing the very same thing, the German school government i would say and we see do, we do see like a lot of that put into practice by europe and the us and the way they use economics as a lever in their 
geopolitical toolbox, so to speak, where you can apply sanctions, which we've seen a lot, obviously, with the current and ongoing war, but also... We're also looking for the the, the strategic uh, independence, the energy strategic independence of the of the Europe and, and matters of the like. Actually, if uh, regarding of that, because you've mentioned already uh, Germany and France, um, the economic landscape of Europe in particular has changed in the last two years, three years. First COVID, uh, now the Russian invasion to Ukraine. So um, what? Uh, how has the geoeconomic landscape changed with the, with the Russian invasion? Well, in these last two years with the... Obviously, the last, the latest thing is the Russian invasion to Ukraine, but also rising energy prices. Uh, now we see that uh, oil prices may rise again because there's uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, has reduced the production. How has this economic, geoeconomic landscape uh, changed in in recent times? Mm-hmm. I, I will start by saying that um, yes, indeed, there is uh, economics put into play and strategy, and I think that. The reason why we have research being developed into the scholar um, environment in the U.S. and Europe today is because uh, we have had the Cold War uh, that was basically a basic and the foundational lesson on how to use economics uh, to support power and how to, to use the economic policy to go with long-term strategy goals. Now, uh, with that in mind, we have entered um, since a long time now, since uh, I would say early 2010, in a new period of time where uh, Europe in particular uh, has woken up to, to the reality of no longer having a very prosperous uh, globalization time, which means that, um, you know, human beings have basically understood that the globalization comes with a cost. It's not only the positive effects that are important and that are visible, but are also negative effects. That was basically happening throughout the first decade of the of the early 2000s, basically. Basically, now with that in mind, um, we have entered the pandemic after not being fully recovered after the economic crisis in Europe, with um, problems uh, that we're basically reshaping also the politics of Europe, not only the economics of Europe. And with the pandemic, we have seen, again, some other negative effects of the globalization. Now, everything went fast forward since the pandemic uh, began, and even more fast forward since the war in Ukraine uh, began. So with the perception of globalization is also having some negative effects on everything we do, um, the, the society put some pressure on policymakers to increase protectionism. So that was the first thing to, to really think about. Mm. The other thing was, okay, we had a first kind of a energy crisis with the pandemic. Uh, that was driven by the demand um, and by the way we consume things and we consume energy in particular. And on the other side, um, by the way that we have not really been very careful with the way we do investments in energy so that we keep the balance there with the consumption. And then when the war in Ukraine started, we have seen a different reality of not only, you know, globalization can be bad, but um, the reality of a war, which was immediately an economic war, the moment that the the ports were um, closed in the Black Sea, that was the moment that we entered the global economic war. So the West reacted to that, the West imposed sanctions, 
without necessarily calculating the effect of sanctions on the Western society itself and leaving room for Russia to take in sanctions. So it was all scaled. Now, one year after the war has started and after sanctions have started, we are beginning to see um, how things have changed in Russia. Like the grain crisis is not only a, a grain crisis for Europe and protectionism that we are seeing in Europe is not only our problem, but it is also Russia's problem. I actually tend to believe that a lot of this is because there are parallel imports that are happening also via Ukraine from Russia into Europe and elsewhere because they're trying to get rid of a surplus that obviously, um, you know, makes things very hard for them considering sanctions are only going to go up. And there are three transnational companies that have withdrawn from Russia or have announced, better said, have announced to withdraw from Russia soon, just several weeks ago. I don't really, I don't really believe in coincidences. So all this happening is about the global market. So what happens here is that the major change with all of this fast forward, on fast forward, on fast forward, after economic crisis into another, is that our mentality has shifted from, I want to grow free, I want to go into free markets, I want to develop into an integrated market and into a global market, to, I want to protect myself. How do I do to protect myself? I want to reshore. I want to make sure that I have uh, enough food on my table. It is I that I am the most important. Not that I don't care about the other, but, you know, I care more about myself. So it's a switch in mentality that basically uh, now affects the way that we do business. So it affects economic policy directly. And I think with this kind of awakening to the vulnerabilities that's, that's come about. Um, this, it's been amplified by the need to switch to clean energy sources, and it hasn't really been done for Europe, I guess, because of the cheap oil and gas that was flowing out of Russia. Um, and it, how have you seen the green energy switch actually affect the, the geoeconomic landscape of Europe as we see, like, Critical Minerals Act being introduced. We see all these ideas, but really, we when you look at the numbers, China dominates the industry still. Very true. Well, I I'm going I'm going with two um, lines of thought here. So one is about how we um, we regard investment into green energy. Because um, if we look at statistics and if we really look at the numbers, investment has not been done much. And we are very much dependent if we are to switch from oil and gas from Russia to green energy today, we are going to be very much dependent on China. So uh, with that in mind, do we want that considering the pandemic and the supply chains uh, problems that we had during the very first months of the pandemic? Um, however, leaving that aside, um, innovation needs money. And during war times, you do not have a lot of money for investment. You usually have people trying to save more because their perception is that uh, worse is going to come faster than, you know, good times. Worse times are, are going to come faster. So with, with that mentality, you have people saving, you have companies saving money. You don't have um, companies trying to invest into new ideas. So we are stuck with all old ideas that are dependent on um, critical minerals that are pretty much available in Africa and that are pretty much linked to the Chinese supply chain and to our dependency on China currently. Now, fast forward into the future. It's not that I'm saying that uh, the West and the Euro European Union is not doing much. It is doing what 
it is supposed to be doing, right? Laying out the legal foundation, laying out the policy uh, foundation uh, for what we could do in the future for making things right and making things better. Now, the question is, are we going to get there fast or slow? And what does this imply, considering that we are in a realignment phase? So with that in mind, you have to also look at the brain resource and how the brain resource, the human resource, in other words, is being affected by the current um, war and by the current shifts. Because when you're talking inflation, when you're talking uh, shifts in mentality, you're also talking shifts in education and ultimately shifts in employment and employment patterns. So it's a more complex um, discussion to have on this, I believe. Um, precisely on that, um... In the end, Europe, what has tried to to achieve, uh, what is trying to achieve, is a diversification of its sources uh, of energy and and materials. Mm, countries like uh, Algeria, uh, Morocco, or Azerbaijan have been put on the table as uh, potential uh, allies that could uh, help diversify that. How is that diversification working in the time? I've read that it, it's surprisingly good. But in the in the long term, uh, in the end, Algeria, for example, and Morocco have uh, traveled between them. So uh, getting our resources from there is complicated and we need to, uh, well, as the European Union needs to uh, accept certain conditions. Azerbaijan, for example, triggers, uh, complicates the, the position uh, in supporting uh, a peace to, a resolution of Nagorno-Karabakh or uh, gives more power to Turkey because the the gasoduct, the pipelines, would have to go uh, through Turkey's influence. Is this diversification uh, going forward, as you were mentioning, fast enough? Uh, will it be reliable in the future, or uh, will the European Union have to look for even more partners uh, in this matter? I would I would suggest that the best answer to that is all of the above, um, or none of the above. <laughs> you should. Uh, why Why am I saying that? Um, well, basically, when you're looking to diversify sources, you're uh, and the the approach that we have um, in our thinking is to diversify sources outside our territory, which I think is a big mistake that we are making because we are leaving aside our own potential. I do believe that Europe has the resources still to um, have some sources at least um, considered for within, uh, from within Europe. And there are uh, steps being done in this direction, including in renewable energy, um, domain. So both fossil fuels are available in Europe and renewable energy uh, is available in Europe. Not to mention that Europe, as it is today, still has uh, the very uh, nice competitive advantage when it comes to brain power, you know, brain resources, innovation. So we still have that. And I think when uh, discussing diversification, that needs to be a source that we regard primarily. Secondary should come everything else. Now, with regards to all kinds of agreement that we can do with North African countries or Caucasus, uh, we have to keep in mind that all those agreements are agreements that those countries are seeing against the agreements that the Russian um, establishment, establishment is also proposing. In other words, take Algeria, for instance. We make a proposal. Russia makes a proposal. Um, Azerbaijan, we are proposing something. Russia is also proposing something. So 
In other words, talk about another shift in mentality. This is it. We are no longer coordinating in global markets. We have competitors and we need to get out of the mentality of uh, cooperation and making the globe look nice because others are not thinking like that. We need to think about our competitive advantage when we are addressing uh, the other side. So diversification in the sense of finding other sources can only be successful if we are better at finding and negotiating agreements than our opponent, which currently is Russia. So that is a major shift. And that is why I said all of the above or none of the above, because it is all dependent on our ability to negotiate. And I mean, we see even with OPEC plus all agreeing to reduce their oil output, the, U the EU and the US have both put uh, their objections to that, but they can't really stop that happening, I think. Mm -hmm. Is that because geoeconomics in the end is also, uh, as you were mentioning, part of uh, geopolitics? Is that a, um, a, is, a does that highlight a, a multipolarity to come? Uh, because the European Union and the US don't have the upper hand anymore, as you were saying. They have to be fighting. They have to be looking for for their for their sources of energy and and raw materials, just like anybody anybody else. But I believe we're we're living through that. I mean, we have resurgent powers, and uh, we do have uh, countries like Russia, China, um, even Turkey and Iran that are looking to grow their posture in their own regions and even globally. So, with that in mind, obviously, uh, we are no longer in a setup where uh, we can count on. You know, that wonderful bipolarity or even, you know, unipolarity, I would say, because uh, after the Cold War ended, uh, the U.S. was pretty much alone in the West. Uh, we're pretty much alone in the world, setting up the framework for doing trade and investment and uh, working uh, or thinking to work with the others in a more or less collaborative um, way, which is no longer the case. So... This is why, yes, multipolarity, for sure. Some powers will be, um, you know, higher powers, major powers. The U.S. is still going to remain the global power, the number one power. But this does not mean that the U.S. cannot be challenged. And it is challenged. So, And so then Europe, just like everybody else, should utilize their competitive advantages. And as you say... That would be technological development. That would be the brain power, the human capital, the Still yeah. capital, the financial capital, and the financial cap capital. Absolutely. Okay. So now moving on, just away from Europe and the U.S. for a bit, I wanted to touch on BRICS and the recent moves potentially to move away from the U.S. dollar and how that could actually evolve. Uh, how that's another counterplay in the geoeconomics by. I guess the BRICS members and the potential BRICS PUPS members in the future. So with BRICS, we need to understand that that is not a functional organization. So that is not an organization, actually. It is a group of countries uh, getting together with the goal of balancing against the Western power. However, uh, during times of war, which we have and which we have had during the last year, uh, countries in BRICS have worked, except for Russia, of course, have worked on both sides, which is telling uh, for the organization or for the group, better said. So in other words, uh, each country is in that group is not necessarily aligned with Russia just because Russia is in the group. Each is seeing its own interest. Now, with regards to the US dollar being threatened, of course, any currency can be threatened. And that's, you know, 
Um, point is that the threat comes from the utility of the currency to the individual. So as long as the dollar is being thought as the most important currency in the world at the individual level, and as long there is a black market for dollars in countries like Iran or Russia or you name More it. Or like Africa. Or, yeah. Then you can bet that the dollar would be the most important uh, currency because it would be a reserve currency not only for the very, you know, white market, the very normal um, financial market, but also for the black market. So it's the common denominator between those two markets, which means that it is the real uh, currency that has most trust at the population level. Now, there, with, with this, we're on Russia because sanctions on Russia and financial sanctions on Russia, while uh, similar to those financial sanctions on Iran, where most, um, let's say, toughest, it was the first time that an economy such as the Russian economy was on such sanctions. And it, the sanctions regarded the financial sector, which is the most important um, sector within the economic sector, keeping the country tied to the international financial market. So because of this, there was much talk about whether there is or might be a potential swift um, channel um, infrastructure or whatever being built. Alternative. Yeah, as an alternative to the current SWIFT. And at a point at the beginning of the war, uh, there was even um, a thought that whatever China has built as a technical infrastructure uh, to use its own currency in doing business with the companies all around the world in different settings in different countries and so on, can actually elevate uh, or be elevated at the level of um, a parallel SWIFT um, infrastructure, which doesn't work because it was built on SWIFT. <laughs> so, um, no, you can't have that. And the reason is uh, because that is basically an infrastructure that was built by the banking institutions and the organizations that deal with financial transactions that we're independent from governments. So SWIFT is independent from governments. Of course, it is located in Belgium. Of course, because of the US dollar being the strongest and the most important currency, um, SWIFT is pretty much, uh, you know, tied to the American power and to the Western power in general. But at the end of the day, it is the banks that want to deal with that system. It is not the governments that force the banks to deal with that system. So anything that runs in parallel uses the system because it's safer. Uh, now, there is a second idea that has been floated around um, you cannot have the parallel system. Why don't you have a currency that works instead of the dollar? And there is this thought that if countries decide to use, you know, the um, Antonia currency to make it more academic. Well, it's worth it. <laughs> of course, uh, you have to. I mean, or, or one currency or whatever, you name it, you know, uh, then. Obviously, the flows, uh, the trade flows will be pretty much denominated in that currency. And because the flows are going to be greater than those flows denominated in the U.S. dollar, that particular currency is going to elevate and be more important than the dollar. That logic works as long as no one, no one changes Antonia's currency to the dollar. In other words, that works if not only those that are writing down on paper payment orders 
and that sort of thing. Uh, choose that currency as the denominator. But if that is the real denominator, and if that currency is really trusted enough to actually make it to be the denominator, the informal denominator on the market, which gets us back to the very beginning. If the individual no longer saves in dollars, and if the individuals choose whatever currency in the world to save in, because they consider mentally, they perceive that currency as the strongest, the safest, whatever, then that is the shift. That is what will challenge uh, the dollar, not a group of countries coming together and saying, we want to do this and this and that to the United States. We agree that the United States is evil, therefore we will have a common currency against its own currency. I agree with that. I'll still save my money in dollars. So. Precisely that you're saying, uh, you're talking about trust and in the end, for example, the dollar, what what keeps it there is what you're mentioning, not that trust in the in the currency, the previous uh, gold pattern but before World War II. Um, um, you've actually written on like also the, the eruption of cryptocurrencies for this matter, like in, in Russia and so. Um, would this trust, I mean, well, cryptocurrencies, I can't remember, uh, I read the article, but I can't remember when you when you wrote it, but definitely the last six months for cryptocurrencies have been a constant downfall. Um, it, would that uh, currency, for example, there's talks in Latin America about creating a common currency, there's talks in Africa, uh, China and Brazil now starting their, their exchange in, 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 their, in their currency. Is that trust so volatile for a for a currency that could be uh, the Chinese uh, yuan or uh, the or the the Brazilian um, uh, escudo? So oh, can't remember right now the currency of Brazil. That's so bad. But is is that trust so is that trust so volatile also for this for these currencies? Because I remember years ago. Um, from Russia media, they were saying, oh, we're going to topple the dollar with these uh, exchanges that we're going to do in rubles, and the ruble is going to be the new currency. This I'm talking about 2013, 2014. And in, I remember the year after the ruble fell 30%. Um, is it that volatile, or or would it be at least more stable than uh, uh, that a random cryptocurrency that from one day to another, because some megalomaniac says... Uh, sell it, uh, it falls 40% of its price. Okay. So, um, a couple of, um, notes on your question. Uh, the first one, digital currencies are not cryptocurrencies. So in other words, uh, the, the rumble that was, um, proposed as a digital currency was not a cryptocurrency at the end of the day it was still the Russian currency as it's the case of the Brazilian currency and so on. Um, so the trust level there is related to um, the trust level in the Russian economy, in the Brazilian economy, in you, you name it, right? Uh, the only difference is that um, Russia and all these other countries were basically saying we want to use the technology um, to make our currency digital because we think that in this way uh, we are going to gain more market share for our currency and therefore have our currency more powerful than the Western currencies, uh, which at the end of the day did not happen. What did happen, and you are, you are right, I did write on this, um, what did happen was that Russia in particular actually not only took uh, the route of digital currency, but also um, got to use blockchain, which is a technology that is used uh, and is known to be used for cryptocurrency uh, um, and cryptocurrencies trading in, um, in particular. But what Russian, what the Russian government did was not using this technology for building up a cryptocurrency or supporting the trading, but 
for building up a very modern administration, which at the time seemed to be, you know, look, this is great what Russia is doing, what the Kremlin is doing. It is actually eliminating corruption and it is actually doing this for the efficiency of the administration and everything else. Um, it seemed like, wait a minute, 2017, why would you do that? Fast forward today, uh, blockchain not only allows you to have efficiency in the system and not only gets corruption out of the way, but it also gets you in a position of control if you're Kremlin and if you are actually controlling the blockchain. So in order to actually know what you're having in the regions, if you're Kremlin, you are employing technology to have full transparency and not depend on the local rulers and local readers and be able to actually be the local leader or be the local ruler because now you can with the use of technology. So technology can actually do that and will likely be used not only by Russia but other states uh, in the idea of building up control, building up a certain kind of governance that allows the government and the administration to be in a particular way from a political standpoint. And at the end of the day, that doesn't necessarily need to have anything to do with cryptocurrency or anything else, right? Uh, there is no one saying that you cannot use blockchain for whatever purpose you want. However, there is an important point with regards to how we see the financial market and how we see these countries when such news appear, such reports come up. We are not uh, necessarily experts in all this field, uh, this fields, and I have to tell you that it took me a while to understand the difference between blockchain and blockchain for currencies and cryptocurrencies. That's a lot of reading to do, and that's not what the public is going to do, which is part of Russia's strategy. So, and part of other countries' strategy. And it comes down to trying to build that confidence, I guess. As you said, the more confident you are in a currency, the more it's used, which builds more confidence and actually is what sets the standard about how valuable currency is. <laughs> And, and it's about perception shaping out reality as well. So confidence, com confidence is built on perception. If you perceive that I'm trust, that I'm, you know, I'm someone you can trust, then you'll have confidence. Exactly. If you perceive that I'm the opposite, then you will not. So it's basically the perception that shapes reality. And this is a game that many countries, not only Russia, as I've said, the U.S. has used this in the Cold War as well, very much on its own economic strategy and its own geoeconomics as a tool to persuade countries to join its fight against the USSR at the time. So, yeah, we have that back in the game, too. That is interesting. Actually, the cryptocurrencies and digital currencies and everything, I mean, it's... Oof. That's something that got me off guard two years ago. Like it was when I wanted to, when I started learning about it, it was, I still need to understand many, many parts of it, to be honest. We all okay. One last thing we'd like to do with guests is just ask about uh, your career path and how you ended up working with geoeconomics as a special, as a specialist, working with geopolitical futures as my boss. <laughs> What sort of career path led you to where you are today and what inspired you? Huh, that is uh, a question that caught me off guard because <laughs> I'm not expecting it. So uh, that means that I, I have to be full, uh, fully honest um, here. That's so the point. Yeah, the idea for us. Yeah, the idea for us is to give inspiration like to people that are finishing or they're starting their studies into like what to for what to pursue, what to do. 
Well, for me, for me was really um, following your hobby, if nothing else. So I, I studied economics. So I'm an economist by background. I was uh, preparing myself mentally and professionally to be a very bored and boring uh, person uh, working in a bank, uh, likely as uh, someone uh, who writes the papers um, and who interacts with clients, um, you know, just um, doing some banking stuff. Um, but I also loved traveling and I loved reading about history and, uh, you know, uh, getting to understand the other. So I basically, the, the Balkans War did not um, fully end when I was um, still in the university years, um, meaning it was the post-conflict um, build-up. There were still news about the Balkans Wars, and there was still, um, you know, this idea that uh, we can get them integrated in the European Union and so on. So that kind of inspired me to, to travel to summer schools and to international conferences and, you know, that plus the fun that you have with meeting peers and uh, meeting international folks. So uh, it was there where I connected with um, someone that was working for Stratfor at the time. Uh, so someone that was working in geopolitics. I didn't know about geopolitics in the geopolitical field before meeting uh, this professor. And this professor introduced me um, to George Friedman and Stratfor and basically said, okay, why, why don't you start an internship with them? See, see whatever works. I was jobless. I needed money as all students, <laughs> uh, you know. And Stratford sounds good. Stratford sounds good for the first internship. <laughs> that 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 is true. I, I wasn't fully aware. For me, it was like, okay, that that's an American company. They must have money. Um, I need money because I like to spend money. As George says, you're from Romania. You need the you need the American money. <laughs> I need the American money, right? Um, plus, I get to talk about stuff like the Western Balkans and. Uh, uh, places like Nagorno-Karabakh that my friends really didn't know where it is on the map. Like they they did know about uh, currencies and this kind of stuff better than I did. Um, so why not? Let's let's join that crowd. And um, yeah, I've just uh, stayed around uh, geopolitics. And then fast forward, I think it was in uh, two thousand. 10 or 2012, um, somewhere in between, where I got interested in my background, my, um, you know, specialty. specialty. And I was looking because I was also studying for my, I, I was finishing up my PhD thesis, which was on country risk assessment and decision making process. And it struck me like, okay my specialty is economics. So there's a lot in here that is actually explained by economics. And I started building up this idea that uh, you cannot really have only politics and economics by default, like macroeconomics, when you're looking in, geop uh, in understanding the geopolitical imperatives. You have to have a bit more you have to have something that addresses the idea of dependencies, addresses the idea of how new infrastructure, digital infrastructure, um, you know, infrastructures that are understood as demographic uh, infrastructures today, like human resources, um, the way that we connect urban versus non-urban, what what that means from a socioeconomic point of view and a political point of view. And that really got me going into uh, working towards a geoeconomic framework.
that 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 was when it started so yeah that's the story i'm not sure if it's inspiring but that that is my... no offense to any bankers my... no offense to any bankers you're not boring you're just a little well, bit boring <laughs> a little bit boring i will say <laughs> i agree <laughs> I mean, I don't know much about that. I was not seeing. I I was not seeing myself as a banker. I was seeing myself more as a cashier kind of. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. No, this is definitely more interesting. I mean, you and you write about would, many. Yeah, yeah you write about many things. So, so definitely, you're you're making the most out of it. Okay. Well, Antonia, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you and uh, you've. To teach us a lot, and uh, we're really, really happy to to have you to have you here. And she's got a new book coming out soon. That's going to be that is going to be a mixture in between geopolitics and geoeconomics. So, uh, but I'm going to keep that one for the next time because I want to join you next time. Okay. Yes, you can. You can come. You can come. You can come and present the the book here. We will be really happy to have that. So, (laughs) read her previous books first. Yes, read her previous preparation. Uh, As we as we mentioned before, 2022, the geoeconomic roundabout: how we enter the first global economic war, and previously, contemporary geopolitics and geoeconomics. And for geopolitical futures. And for your subscribers, of course. That that is you guys promoting the subscription. I <laughs> I can promote that. You have nothing to do with that. Okay. I have nothing to do with that. <laughs> but um then again, thank you very much, Antonia Colibasano, for being with us today. And uh we'll wait. We'll see you again in a new geopolitical people episode. It was fun. Thank you very much for having me. The Geopolitical Pickle is created by Ronan Wordsworth and Juan Francisco Muñoz, two Geopolitical Studies postgrads from Charles University in Prague, Czech Republic. Follow us on Instagram at The Geopolitical Pickle or Twitter at The Geopickle for more content and follow us on every podcast platform.